An Introduction to the Poetry of Truth, Reflections on Mark Twain's The United States of Lynchardom, by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. I'll begin just with the first four verses of Luke's Gospel, which is his dedication to Theophilus, and it reads as follows. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. End quote. So this Theophilus is an unknown figure, but we, we learn from this that he has been instructed in the gospel, but that, he, according to Luke, he still needs something beyond that. Uh, he needs to know the truth concerning the things about which he has been instructed. And I would say that's true of us. It's always true of us. It's, the, it's always true of the gospel. We are always in need of being of bringing it more fully into our into our uh, into our world and into our own experience. It's worth noting that the Greek verb. I'm not going to do a lot of exegesis as we go through the Gospel of Luke. I've I've you know done my share of exegetical reading. It's all very helpful, uh, but at a certain point one has to fish or cut bait, and so I'm going to leave exegesis to the exegetes by and large and, and uh, approach the gospel more existentially and anthropologically and ontologically in terms of its spiritual implications and so on. But sometimes the exegetes uh, help us a great deal. And here it's, a, uh, it's important to note that the verb here to know in the last verse, verse 4 of what I just read to you, he says, uh, I'm writing this orderly account so that you may come to know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. The verb to know is not the usual Greek word, ginosko. It is an emphatic form of that, epigenosko, which means knowing full well, really knowing. Uh, we, we would say, perhaps in our, the way we would speak, we would say, the, the truth becomes an experience. I would say that perhaps would parallel what Luke is talking about. You, Theophilus, or you, contemporary uh, Christians or people exposed to the Christian message know, in, a, in the ordinary sense of the term, the truth, but it has yet to become an experience, a living experience. And I would say that's probably the way to read that. The word, by the way, is used uh, similarly in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he says, now we see through a glass darkly, or a dim reflection in a mirror, depending on how it's translated, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know, and it's the simple knowing, ginosko, imperfectly, but then I shall know epigenosko as fully as I am known. Again, epigenosko. So this deeper kind of knowledge is what both the Pauline uh, theology or preaching is about and what Paul and what Luke, Luke's uh, gospel is about. How do we come to know full well the truth of the gospel? And for Luke, of course, to know full well is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
come, one comes to know full well when one is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke is the, is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. And anybody who goes to the gospels for any other reason is wasting his or her time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty major cottage industry these days uh, in the scholarly world. Uh, people go to the gospel uh, for other reasons. They go to disprove it or to find the historical Jesus or this or that, but I think we have to follow Luke's and Paul's suggestion and that we need to have the full experience of what this liberating message of the gospel is. So what, Paul, what Luke is doing is a perennial task, taking the existing understanding of the gospel and taking it deeper and make and ramifying it into our lives and, and, and uh, extending its effect in our world. And it's that task that I think Rene Girard has helped immensely in, in our time. Uh, Girard is a cultural theorist who has, who has uh, provided, articulated a theory of culture and, and psychosocial reality, which I think is the most profound one um, that we now have. And I will be using his work because I think it helps us unlock precisely this deeper knowledge that uh, Luke was uh, trying to uh, release in his gospel. And I, I, I'm not going to give you an abstract of, of Girard's uh, theory, except to say before I begin that he, he so I would summarize it this way. For Girard, at the, at the hidden center of all culture is a victim. The culture generates its social solidarity at the expense of its victim. That is to say, uh, cultures are created, generated from the beginning, since the foundation of the world, to use uh, gospel language, uh, by victimiz an act of victimization which is structurally identical to the crucifixion. Uh, this this uh, generation of cultural consensus at the expense of the victim is what Robert Hamilton Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, GMSM, uh, that which is a funny way of saying it maybe, but it's, I think, helpful. Mimetic simply means imitative, and we'll come to that later on. Uh, the other thing that Girard has made um, intelligible to us is the real nature of, of human subjectivity, the real nature of the self. And if, if at the hidden center of culture is a, or you, instead of center, you would say, if at the dark origin of cultural life, social solidarity, is a, is a unanimous mob murder or expulsion, a victimization of some kind. At the occluded center of human subjectivity is a model. All of us have a model. And in other words, we are imitative creatures, and we are always imitating. And the question is, who are we imitating? Uh, and we moderns like to pride ourselves in not imitating, but of course if you look around you see it's a total joke. The question is, who are we imitating and what are the consequences of that imitation? So there's the, there, there it is in a nutshell. So that, so that Gerard makes it possible for us to read all kinds of things, from the newspaper to, to literary text to the scriptural text, in terms of their anthropological significance and in terms of their ontological significance. Ontology simply means the nature of being. 
And in this case, we're talking about human ontology, the nature of human, our human existence, the, the, the nature of the self. And I think Girard's uh, powerful an analysis is the great breakthrough in our age, not that others won't be needed in, in subsequent ages, but it's the great breakthrough that makes it possible for us to decode cultural life and psychological and spiritual life at the same time. So I can't say enough about it. I think it's very important work. Okay, so I'm going to use that. Now, the qu then, then I have this problem. The question is, you've heard me talk about this stuff for years and years, so you don't want to hear it again. I mean, you don't want to hear the introductory talk again, which I'm always giving. So I, had, I thought to myself, after a couple of people said to me, because a couple of these last series we did, I didn't really get into it. I just started talking, to, I just started applying the Girardian hermeneutic without uh, outlining it. I didn't even realize I was doing that, but some people called it to my attention. So here I am. I need to, I need to introduce it, but I don't want to bore people who have uh, been through it before. So what do I do? Well, I had a text fall into my lap, which is going to make it possible, I think, with the, with the minimum amount of uh, boredom on your part. And not, there'll be some, no doubt, but, uh, and, and it's not perfect because it, it will be an inadequate presentation of uh, Girard's breakthrough. Somebody once said of, of Kafka that great writers create their own precursors, and I think it's very true of Girard. Once you read Girard, well, we just finished a, a series on Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, once you read Girard, you can go back and read Virgil's Aeneid, and uh, I found that to be the case with uh, most texts that I take up. But also there are people who have anticipated Girard's work, and many of them have done it in a, in a scholarly way, uh, people like Denis de Rougemont and so on. But I, would, uh, I want to bring you something a little easier to digest, which is uh, a little piece by Mark Twain. Now, I know my, you know, my role in all of this is to, is to try to make some of this stuff accessible. So when I find something by Mark Twain, I think this is fabulous. Because Mark Twain is not some uh, academic who who talks in polysyllabic terms, I, I that's a disease I've caught. You know, I, I because I've already talked about ontology and and later on when to talk about epistemology. By the way, if I don't stop to note that when ontology just means the nature of being, the study of the real nature of being, and epistemology just means how we come to know things. It's it's. It's the way in which we know something, and if there's an epistemological shift or epistemological breakthrough, it means that we have to know things. Not only do we know something different from what we knew before, but the way in which we know things has to change. An epistemological revolution means the way we come to know things is different than it was before. You can have a, you can have a, a sort of informational or knowledge-based change by just knowing more than you did, or an additional thing or something, but when you, when the way in which you know things shifts, then you have an epistemological shift. So I'm so that, see, I've caught the polysyllabic disease just reading these books. But so uh, ontology is one thing we'll talk about: the nature of being, and epistemology is the nature of knowing. And we have to talk about those things because the gospel is, among other things, an ontological revolution and an epistemological revolution. It's also an anthropological revolution. So these are big words, but that's the way we have to talk about it. So anyway, big words will be at a minimum because we're going to use Mark Twain.
And I, what I want to do is, is, is talk about an essay that he wrote in 1901 entitled The United States of Lyncherdom. And it's about a lynching and an epidemic of lynching. And he has some very interesting things to say about it. Now, let me say this. The Gospel of Luke is the, is the Gospel of the Holy Spirit. It's a gospel of, it's the discipleship gospel. Luke is the evangelist that has, as one reads Luke, one feels this, has a, has a deep personal connection to Christ. So it's a spiritual gospel. It's a gospel about Christian spirituality. And that's precisely what I want to draw out from it. I want it, I want to, I want us to know something more about the nature of discipleship as we read this gospel. So I don't want you to get the wrong impression this week, because this week I'm going to talk about the cultural aspects, the anthropological aspect, the whole business of violence and scapegoating. Because clearly, if at the center of the gospel is the passion, crucifixion, resurrection, uh, we have to account for the fact that we Christians regard that as the saving event of in human history. How can we say that we have been saved by a hanged man? So what I want to do today is pr uh, fill in the anthropological backdrop. And I won't do it, really. All I'm going to do is call to mind some of the issues by reading this Mark Twain essay. But I want to say at the outset that I, this is not to... I don't want to leave you with the impression that we're going to be talking about violence and scapegoating all the way through Luke's Gospel. We'll talk about it occasionally because the Gospel is always concerned about that. How could a Gospel at the center of which is the crucifixion not be concerned about that? Nevertheless, Luke, as an evangelist, is concerned about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to follow the way uh, that Jesus set out. And that's really what I want to focus on. But today we'll deal with another issue. And so here we have this essay called The United States of Lynchardom. And it comes to mind, I mean, it fell into my lap, but it also is maybe apropos because Mark Twain is, is shocked by the fact that people who regard themselves as Christians are lynching other people. And in the last few months, we, some of us have been shocked, I mean, we probably knew of it to some extent, but we've been shocked to find that there are these militia types roaming the woods in Michigan and Idaho uh, and blowing up federal buildings and, and uh, plotting, uh, you know, storing weapons and et cetera, et cetera, uh, and quoting from the New Testament. So some of the shock that Mark Twain felt is being felt now. And what we see in these groups is a kind of scapegoating activity, uh, which is... Which is uh, seem to be at least compatible, by some at least, uh, with Christianity. And I think that's what disturbs Mark Twain in this essay. So anyway, here it is. I'm just going to read uh, major portions of this brief little essay. I say brief so you won't get too antsy. And comment upon it as, as we go along. And this is my way of reminding us of the fundamental issues that Girard raises uh, in his cultural anthropology, which will help us as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. So here's how he begins. He says, Mark Twain, quoting Mark Twain, And so Missouri has fallen, that great state. Certain of her children have joined the lynchers, and the smirch is upon the rest of us. 
And to the dwellers in the four corners of the earth we are lynchers, now and ever shall be. So he goes on to say, uh, the world has no sense of proportion. With it, figures go for nothing. That is, to that is to say, percentages, statistics, stuff like that. Figures go for nothing. To it, to the world, figures reveal nothing. It cannot reason upon them rationally. It would say, and now he has an analogy, which is very cleverly placed here because he will return to it at the end of his little essay and with something very interesting to say about it. But here's his analogy, and he uses it at the beginning of his essays to show that we don't, that, that we don't take into consideration the arithmetic of the, of, of the situation. So he says, the world would say, because it never operates on the basis of numbers and statistics and so on, uh, it would say, for instance, that China is being swiftly and surely Christianized since nine Chinese Christians are being made every day. And it would fail to notice that the fact that 33,000 pagans were born there every day damages the argument. It would say, quote, the world would say, quote, there are a hundred lynchers there, therefore the Missourians are lynchers. The considerable fact that there are two and a half million Missourians who are not lynchers would not affect their verdict. Now, this is true, of course, we know this. Perhaps one ought to notice also something else, which is that when we say we all stand under the judgment of the cross, what do we mean? We mean we're all crucified. Does that mean that all of us have gone out and participated in this? Not at all. Uh, does it mean that we have it in us? Yes. Does it mean that we live, we benefit from certain sacrificial events? Absolutely. You see, we look back now on the Crusades and we think these were terrible things, and they were, and they were especially terrible because they were done under the auspices of, of Christianity. That's what makes them so glaringly terrible. You see, the moral misgivings we have about these things always has to do with their proximity as Westerners. The moral misgivings we have about scapegoating events always has to do with their, their proximity, either physically or metaphysically, to the gospel. And if, there be, if these scapegoating events are occurring in close proximity, physically or metaphysically, to the gospel, then it won't be long before severe moral misgivings about them arise. And if the, if the gospels and these scapegoating events can be sufficiently separated, it may take a while for our moral misgivings to, to awaken. But if they're anywhere near the gospel, it won't take long. Well, I, re I make the point about we, are, we regard ourselves as crucifiers because, A, we have it in us. The reflexes, the psychological and social reflexes that, that lead to this, this kind of scapegoating, lynching kind of activity are very much a part of us. It's synonymous almost with what Paul calls the world of sin, the grip of sin. It's a very powerful reflex. Uh, and secondly, we all benefit from these things. So we can, we can be tremendously critical, as we should be, of the Crusades. But the Crusades created Europe. What we call Europe was created by the Crusades. And we can be tremendously critical of certain other sacrificial events that have occurred. But at the same time, we, we are benefiting from the social consensus that these sacrificial events brought into play. So in that sense, we are all crucified. We are all we all stand under the judgment of the cross. So when he says uh, the world is calling all of us Missourians uh, lynchers, I, uh, you see, he, he wants to narrow it down. He says 
He wants to say, we should only call those 10 people or those 150 people or those whatever it was. We should only refer to them as lynchers and not all the rest of us. Well, the gospel would say, no, we should refer to the whole world as lynchers because it's in us. This is how we generate our cultural life and always have since the foundation of the world. So, just to make a note. Okay. So, anyway, here's now he describes what happens. Now, he describes it in a very careful and circuitous way because he doesn't want... He, this is a rhetorical piece. He wants to convince his readers of the point he's trying to make, which is that that lynching is a terrible thing and we ought not to do it. And I'm completely with him. We're all completely with him. Uh, but I'm trained as a lawyer, so I can recognize uh, legal argumentation when I see it. He clearly is not going to he's not going to support the other side of the case. And as I was reading this, it reminded me ever so much of a lawyer standing in front of a jury. Uh, he's trying to downplay the other side of the case. There is another side of the case, of course, but he doesn't want to get into that. And he and he, so he talks about the lynching. And as he does, you realize that the lynching is formulaic. That is to say. The fact that we call, what we call grade B movies always look the same, there's a reason for that. And they, re they look the same because, to some extent they look the same, because unleashing the sacrificial impulse, the scapegoating impulse, giving it moral license and even giving it religious sanction uh, is a process that requires certain things to be in play. So if we're trying to unleash the sacrificial, or I say we try, it's not like we set out to do it very often. I mean, maybe if you're Hitler you do, or something like that. But for most of us, it's, it's less conscious than But if we're going to unleash this uh, social spasm and create with it some kind of, some kind of social unanimity that will in, end in our self-congratulations and uh, a sense that we just did the right thing by lynching or running somebody out of town, certain things have to be uh, in the mix. The recipe has to be followed. And notice how closely followed the recipe is here. I'm not saying it was set up. I'm just saying that it, the reason this resulted in a lynching is because it had all the ingredients. So he says, the tragedy occurred near Pierce City, down in the southwestern corner of the state. On a Sunday afternoon, okay, note, what day? Was it, was it Wednesday? Had it been Wednesday, would it have been different? Well, you see what I'm saying? We're talking about a formula here. On a Sunday afternoon, a young white woman, right person, right, exactly the right person, had started home from where? You got it, church. Okay, and was found murdered. You see, this is, this is how lynchings occur. I mean, I'm not mocking it, you know. I'm just saying the, the formula is there. <coughs> And then he says, for there are churches there. In my time, religion was more general, more pervasive in the South than it was in the North, and more virile and earnest too, I think. I have some reason to believe that this is still the case. So religion now is this anthropologically, let me just talk not about Christianity for, this, for the moment, but anthropologically religion is a two-edged sword. It can keep violence from erupting. That's what its prohibitions do. Uh, the Ten Commandments, for example, rule out certain behaviors which would very quickly destroy social life. 
You see? The, stealing, robbing, coveting, taking the spouse of somebody else, always looking jealously on others. All of, the, all of those things are, are things that would very quickly destroy social life. So religious uh, prohibition against such things keep, keep the peace to some extent. These same prohibitions, however, you know, Paul says sin took advantage of the law. These same prohibitions serve as a tripwire for unleashing scapegoating violence if somebody should, should, in some particularly graphic and outrageous way, break one of these taboos. So the law can go both ways. It can, it can keep violence from occurring, and if, it becomes, if, it, if sin takes advantage of the law, it can, it can focus all of the community's outrage on one victim and funnel all the violence into one place, spend it economically, and, return, and restore some kind of social consensus at the expense of the victim who was found to be culpable. Well, I'm being very quick about it, but the fact that Mark Twain regards religion here as being a little bit ambivalent. And then he says, although it was a region of churches and schools, the people rose up and lynched three Negroes, two of them very aged ones, burned out five Negro households, and drove 30 Negroes, Negro families into the woods. Now, if we had nothing to go on except this, would we say those Negroes who were lynched, were they guilty or not guilty? We would automatically say they were not guilty. We would certainly say that the, that the uh, households and the 30 people driven into the woods were not guilty. We know that regardless of the fact that we have no specific detail. And this comes back to the epistemological question, how do we know that? Why do we know that? If there had never been a crucifixion, resurrection, and a gospel story, would we know that? Would we automatically know that they were innocent? Now, this doesn't mean they were, they were necessarily technically innocent. It's conceivable, although I would say problematic, it's conceivable that one or more of the people lynched actually performed the outrageous deed. We'll come to the outrageous deed later. He, by the way, this woman was murdered. That's the only crime that's mentioned, although it's perfectly clear that she was also raped. And I say perfectly clear, we'll see in a second. So it's, it's conceivable, though problematic, that one or more of these men who was lynched committed the crime. But we know, looking back on it, that the real culpable persons in this event were the lynchers. Not because we're excusing anybody who would have committed a rape and a murder, but because we see this event from another point of view. And we wouldn't see it from that point of view had it not been for the biblical tradition. The biblical tradition inspires us to see this from the point of view of the victim. That's what the cross does in world history. Well, anyway, I, I, I get ahead. In a way, all of this is getting ahead of the gospel because it's a way of, uh, of, of trying to provide a, an overview. So now Mark Twain says they were lynched and these uh, families were driven out. And then he says, I do not dwell upon the provocation which moved the people to these crimes. 
for that has nothing to do with the matter. Now he's very much like a lawyer in front of the jury. I'm not going to talk about the provocation, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's saying, more or less, because that's not the issue here. Can you just see the lawyer saying, now when my, when my worthy opponent stands up here and talks to you, he's going to tell you that's the issue. You know, what was the provocation? Terrible, terrible thing that was done to this woman. But Mark Twain, who's, who's now the other lawyer, he's saying that's not the issue, and don't you believe anybody who tells you that's the issue. The issue is the lynching. And he's right. Now, but to understand why it happened, you might have to look and see what that provocation is. It's a very graphic provocation. And then he says, the only question is, does the assassin take the law into his own hands? And that what does it mean to, say, to take the law into one's own hands? What is the law that one takes into one's own hands? It's the thing that Paul says sin can take advantage of. You see, what is the law? In other words, if, the, if a court had judged these people guilty and hung them, they'd be just as dead, but there'd be no outrage. It would be justice. It would have been sanctioned. It would have, it would have had some kind of sacred status and therefore would not be morally troubling. I think the day is coming when, it, when even officially sanctioned versions of that will be morally troubling. It's already here because there are very few societies that still do it, ours being one of them. Uh, even South Africa, I think, recently uh, did away with the death penalty. So we're in more and more of a minority all the time. And then he says, it's very simple and very just. If the assassin be proved to have usurped the law's prerogative in righting his wrongs, that ends the matter. A thousand provocations are no defense. And so the only question is, did they take the law into their own hands? We can't allow people to take the law into their own hands. He's absolutely right in terms of social life, no doubt about it. But let's look at it anthropologically. Anthropologically, we have to say, what is the law? The law is that system of prohibitions and that structure of sacralizing violence that can enforce them. Now, we humans would have been lost without such a thing, but if we go back and analyze it, we find some, some things that uh, should make us understand all the more why it is we all stand under the judgment of the cross. And the story I would share with you, which is a similar story to the one that took place in Pierce City, Missouri, a hundred years ago, is one that took place in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago, or something like that. And it's recorded in the 25th chapter of the Book of Numbers. I've been over this before, but I think when we talk about taking the law into, your, into one's own hands, here's, here's an example. And here it is. I'll, be very, I'll try to do it as quick as I can. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. They invited the peop these women, Moabite women, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Thus Israel yoked itself to the Baal of Peor. Baal was this Canaanite fertility god that, that uh, uh, the Israelites encountered uh, when they came to Canaan. Now, I, we should point out here, I talked about the formula for these sorts of things. The formula often involves sexual transgressions of one kind or another, which lead to, finally, some kind of scapegoating event. And the fact that there are sexual transgressions indicates that the prohibitions against such things have broken down. And so you get 
uh, a, a lot of what it looks at first like sexual liberation. That's what it passes for in our world. We, we don't realize that it represents, first of all, it's not liberating. Secondly, for the most part, it's not. Secondly, it, it is a symptom of a, of a spiraling crisis which will end in a scapegoating or sacrificial scenario or scenarios, plural, very plural, uh, in some cases. Okay, so in the Pierce City, you see it was a woman who was raped, although Mark Twain doesn't want to say the word rape. Uh, he clearly knows that's what happened. And here in ancient Israel, it's the, uh, it's the Israelite men taking Moabite concubines and going off to these uh, fertility cult rituals which uh, involved uh, sacred prostitution and all the rest of it. So here we have it. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. By the way, this is, I'm doing this for the sake of future tape subscribers. Right here I should have a footnote which says, if all of this is confusing, go read my book, Violence Unveiled, because I feel like I can't. If I stop to try to fill in all the background of this, on the other hand, I don't want to go too quickly over it. Okay, so uh, the Lord said to Moses, impale all the chiefs. Now, this is pretty striking because the chiefs are not the ones that have been out there bowing before the ball of Peor. The chiefs have been, they're the, they're the good guys, right? And Yahweh says, impale them. In other words, a sacrificial, a cathartic and dramatic sacrificial ritual impaling the leaders of the people of Israel is what would resolve the problem. You see, it doesn't have to do with guilt or innocence. It has to do with the catharsis of the sacrificial act. Does it have cathartic power? You see, does it, is it riveting? Uh, does it have? Does it does it achieve a kind of religious status? Moses waters down Yahweh's injunction. He says to the judges of Israel, "Quote." Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to the ball of Peor, who have bowed before this other pagan god. So Moses reinterprets what Yahweh has said. He changes it and makes it more just. So now the people who are going to die are not just the very prominent people in the culture. They're the people who actually bowed before the pagan gods. Okay, so now we're gearing up for that kind of but still, there are lots of them. According to this, there are lots of people who've done that. So we're talking about impaling a whole lot of people. Now, remember, Caiaphas says, it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. The sacrificial uh, recipe is very economical when it's, when it's really working. And this looks like it's going to cause a lot of death. Well, then we have one of the, one of the biblical traditions, great examples of bad timing, at least for this poor Israelite and his concubine. Just then, reading from the text, just then, one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman into his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of Israelites while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is the holy place. This is like the Pierce City thing on Sunday afternoon as she returned from church. You see what I'm saying? And now they're all gathered at the tent of meeting and they're all bemoaning the fact that, that Israel's in such a state and suddenly this very 
graphic example of precisely the transgression that's causing all the problems happens right in front of their eyes. You see, this is what causes the lynching impulse. So it says, having seen this, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, got up, left the congregation, taking a spear in his hand. He went after the Israelite into the man's tent and pierced the two of them, the Israelite and the woman, through the belly. And then it says, so the plague stopped among the people of Israel. Nevertheless, those that died in the plague were 24,000. There's no mention of plague until now. And now we realize 24,000 people, which is just a, an, a, a literary way of saying a whole lot of people have died in a plague. Well, plagues that can be ended this way are not medical plagues. They're social plagues. They're some kind of breakdown of social order and violence and people dying. But when they can end this way, you know for sure it's not a, it's not a plague caused by uh, anything medical. Okay, now here's what happened. What, let's stop to think. What just happened? Phineas took the law into his own hands. Did he not? Now, Mark Twain says we can't do that. And he's right. We can't do that. Phineas can and we can't. Why can he and why can't we? In, in the Wild West, somebody could still do it. You see, in the Wild West, somebody who, you know, somebody's rampaging through the town doing terrible things, you know, destroying people, shooting a place up, and some sort of Matt Dillon type finally stands up and goes out and kills the guy, and the whole town gathers and puts the badge on him. He took the law into his own hands, and he becomes the law. I'm sure it happened hundreds of times in the Wild West. It could happen then, you see. And that shows that the distinction between the law and taking the law into one's own hands is not an absolute distinction. And just what happens here. Yahweh says to Moses, quote, quoting Yahweh, the biblical Yahweh, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy I did not consume the Israelites. Therefore, I say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for all his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. He shall be a priest forever and his clan a priest forever. Priests were the ones who could offer ritual sacrifice. They could sac make, kill the animal victim on the altar and make atonement for the sin which is just exactly what he did, except it wasn't an animal victim, it was a human victim. All I, This is a long-winded way of saying he took the law into his own hands, and it worked because his act was subsequently, ex post facto, sacralized, which is what happens when we pin the badge on the guy who just shot the gunswing. It gets sacralized ex post facto. What Mark Twain is concerned about is, is not hanging but hanging that is not sacralized, because it's only hanging that is not sacralized that's morally offensive. Sacralized hanging is not morally offensive. Now, the question, of course, is how long can we sacralize hanging? And I would say not very much longer. No matter how much legitimacy we try to bestow upon it, it will lose its sacral status because the gospel is invading world history with its revelation of the insubstantiality of the whole sacralizing system, the, sac the system of sacralizing violence. This is, I'm saying this entirely too quickly, and I apologize to, to people, none of you, but other people who might be listening to this on a tape for the first time. 
And I, I'm sorry it's happening so quickly. Anyway, back to Mark Twain. Mark Twain says, Why has lynching with various barbaric accompaniments become a favorite regulator in cases of the usual crime? He says, the usual crime. The usual crime is rape and murder. And he doesn't want to say the word rape because murder, he can, he can say, he has to because she was murdered. But he doesn't have to say rape and he won't because he knows how scandalous that can be. So he just calls it, quote, the usual crime. Why, he says, is, is lynching becoming such a favorite regulator in cases such as this? In all parts of the country, he says. Is it because men think a lurid and terrible punishment a more forcible object lesson and a more effective deterrent than a sober and colorless hanging done privately in a jail should be? Surely sane men do not think that. The issue here is social catharsis. You see, catharsis is another word for sacralization. When people gather for one of these scapegoating events, if it's cathartic, everybody can go home feeling that they just triumphed over evil. If it doesn't achieve catharsis, there's moral misgiving. And he's asking, why are people doing it? Well, because the, the official system of justice isn't capable of catharsis. You see, it's, it has sanction, so, there's not, so it's less likely to awaken moral misgivings. And that's the good part. The bad part is, it isn't cathartic. It doesn't do for a society what cathartic violence has always done. And so more and more people are taking it into their own hands. See, and this is happening in our world. Street gangs, you know, these, the m militia types that are wandering the woods, these are, these are examples of people needing some kind of cathartic uh, event that will bring, that will solidify them as a, as a society, as a social unit. And this, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to plug my book, but it, this, is, this is what I talked about in the book, which is if you don't achieve catharsis, then it just is a provocation to copycat. So what we call today copycat crime are an example of that. And Mark Twain was on to it a hundred years ago. He says, even the average child should know that any strange and much talked about event is always followed by imitation. For example, he says, a child should know that if a man jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, another will imitate him. Now I bring this in because here's Mark Twain talking about lynching and then he's talking about imitation and how central imitation is for understanding us. And I, I was stunned when I read this how much he anticipates the work of René Girard. So he says, if, if, if a man jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, another will imitate him. If a person venture down Niagara Whirlpool in a barrel, another will imitate him. If a Jack the Ripper make notoriety by slaughtering women in dark alleys, he will be imitated. And if a man attempt a king's life and the newspapers carry the noise of it around the globe, regicides will crop up all around. Attacks on the White House. Take, take that, for instance. You know, somebody crashes their plane into the White House lawn, somebody else takes a shot, somebody else tries to climb over the fence, suddenly Pennsylvania Avenue's closed. He says, a child should know that by a law of our make, now he, this is essential to us, by a law of our make, we are imitators and that a much-talked-about lynching will infallibly produce other lynchings here and there and yonder, and in time these will breed a mania, 
a fashion, a fashion that will spread wider and wider year by year, covering state after state as with an advancing disease. And that's true only if these lynchings do not achieve cathartic effect. If they achieve, and they can't achieve cathartic, they really can't achieve and maintain any kind of sacred status in a world that's been exposed to the biblical tradition, particularly the New Testament tradition, because too many moral misgivings are awakened too quickly in the aftermath of such things for it to have long-lasting social effects. So, so it can't achieve its old state. It used to be, the story of Phineas, an example of that, used to be such things could achieve sacred status. But they can't achieve sacred status anymore because when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The, whole, the old sacred system was destroyed. Uh, and slowly but surely, the paraclete is, is uh, bringing that revelation into history and making it uh, increasingly impossible for such things to happen. I'm being incredibly quick about this, but um, I hope you'll forgive that. Part of uh, Mark Twain's argumentation is a quote he makes from the Chicago Tribune showing that lynching is on the rise. There were, uh, there, uh, la uh, last year there, he says there were 115. This year, halfway through, he's writing this uh, essay in the middle of the summer of uh, the year 1900. He says this year there are already 88, so clearly we're going to have more than we had last year. Uh, so it's, it's an epidemic. And then he says, it must be that the increase come comes of the inborn human instinct to imitate, and that man's commonest weakness, his aversion to being unpleasantly conspicuous, pointed at and shunned, keeps people, makes people do this. Why are they doing it? Well, because they imitate others, and they don't want to be left out of the crowd. He doesn't quite understand this, I think. Uh, he thinks it's too rational. He thinks of it as being too rational. He doesn't realize the, the power of a of a crowd, the mimetic power of a crowd. Uh, so he thinks the people that are participating in these lynchings really don't want to be there. They're just being hypocrites because they, uh, they're afraid to admit that they don't want to be there. And I would say, just parenthetically, I would say a, a, a good word has to be said for hypocrisy. First of all, where would we be without it? If we depended exclusively on non-hypocrites for the, for the transmission of the Christian message, would it have gotten down to us? And if hypocrisy disqualified, automatically disqualified anybody from professing the gospel, how many of us would have to fall silent? You see what I'm saying? We should say a little word about hypocrisy. First of all, hypocrisy means you're aware of the fact that you're not living up to it. Now, you may not be letting on to others, but at least you're aware of it. When you're, that, when you're caught up in a myth that justifies all this, you're not aware of the fact you're doing something that isn't living up to some higher principle. You're only aware of that when the myth begins to break down. So I would say when hypocrisy happens, that's a good sign. That's a sign that the gospel is destroying the myth, the myth that justifies the violence. It doesn't mean that hypocrites are, you know, that we shouldn't all try not to be hypocrites, but let's not be too hard on hypocrites. <clears throat> it's a good sign. That's a little weird to say that, but... Okay, so here's, now, here's where Mark Twain is a little weak in his analysis. 
He says, people think all these people that go to these lynchings enjoy it. Clearly, they don't enjoy it because they're just like me and you, you know. They they have a moral sense. They realize it's not the right thing. And the only reason they're there is because they're too cowardly to walk away. They don't want their the other people in the group uh, to think of them as being uh, as being not a member of the group. So he says, why does a crowd stand by, smitten to the heart and miserable, and by ostentatious outward signs pretend to enjoy a lynching? Why does it lift no hand or voice in protest? Only because it would be unpopular to do so, I think. Each man is afraid of his neighbor's disapproval. Well, that's pretty weak, because I th- and and it's typical. It's a typical kind of Western Enlightenment position, uh, because we don't understand the power of this. We don't understand what it is that is touched by these scapegoating events, and so in order to put us in touch with that, and therefore help us understand all the more what it is we've been freed from among other things, by the gospel revelation. I'll quote a little passage from Bill Buford's very troubling book called Among the Thugs. This was a reporter that lived among the skinheads uh, in uh, in Europe for a while, and he wrote a book about it. And there was one event. I've been over this before. But there's one episode. There were a number of them in this book. One episode where this group of thugs uh, attack this one you know, scapegoat this one person. And here's what Bill Buford said. And he's there as a journalist. He said, there were six of them. They all started kicking the boy on the ground. The boy covered his face. I was surprised that I could tell from the sound when someone's shoe missed or when it struck the fingers of, and not the forehead or the nose. I was transfixed. I suppose thinking about this incident now, I was close enough to have stopped the kicking, but I didn't. I don't think it, the thought even occurred to me. It was as if time had dramatically slowed down, and each second had a distinct beginning and end, like a sequence of images on a roll of film, and I was mesmerized by each image I saw. Now, I want this is where I want to talk about epistemology. That is to say, we could say that this, there's something ter- that there's, there's a, a moral eclipse that's occurring here. That's precisely what this is about, a moral eclipse. But it's also an epistemological eclipse. One can't even... Uh, the, one doesn't even register what's going on. It becomes some vague sort of thing in a twilight zone. And then he says, with that first exchange, some kind of threshold had been crossed, some notional boundary. On one side of that boundary had been a sense of limits, an ordinary understanding, even among this lot, of what you didn't do. We were now someplace where there were few limits, where the sense that there were things you didn't do ceased to exist. And the event was exciting, he said. It was an excitement, quoting him, that verged on being something greater, an emotion more transcendent, a joy at the very least, but more like ecstasy. There was an immense energy about it. It was impossible not to feel some of the thrill. Somebody near me said that he was happy, very happy, that he could not ever remember being so happy, in close. This is a terrible thing to read. Uh, but I, I read it as... as an antidote to the analysis that Mark Twain provided, which is that, oh, we're just, nobody really wants to be there. It's true to some extent. To the extent that we don't want to be there, the gospel is working on us. 
But to the extent that Bill Buford's uh, uh, experience uh, is apropos, the gospel has been totally eclipsed by that powerful generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism that creates myth and culture, conventional culture. So now Mark Twain, having laid all that out, now he wants to ask the question, how do we stop this? How do we stop this? What he's seen, we, we don't realize when we look out at the modern world, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people look at the modern world, they don't even see a crisis. This is because we're like frogs. You know, they say if you throw a frog in boiling water, it'll jump right out, but if you put it in lukewarm water and turn up the temperature, it'll just cook. If we, well, if we went to sleep one night in 1965 and woke up in 1995, we, wouldn't, we would be screaming and pulling our hair out. But because it has happened over 30 years, we don't see. So a lot of people look out and don't even see a crisis. Other people look out and see a crisis, and they think that it started 30 years ago, or three years ago. But it started, then the question is, when did it start? One of the characters in Flannery O'Connor's, one of her short stories, A Good Man's Hard to Find, who's this psychopath, he says, Jesus thrown it off. Jesus thrown everything off. And it's true. Because the old way of creating cultural uh, uh, stability was scapegoating, sacrificial. And, and uh, the crucifixion has destroyed that. And the paraclete working through history has, has dissolved it. And so we now live it. Now, there's a race going on between the effect of the crucifixion, which is to destroy that old generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism and the message of the gospel which is how to live without it and we have shunned to a large extent or certainly we have not embraced it the way we need to uh, the message of the gospel meanwhile whether we like it or not the gospel the effect of the god the paraclete is working night and day regardless of whether or not we're undergoing a conversion the paraclete is destroying those old structures those old scapegoating structures so, when Mark Twain looks out in the year 1901 and sees this very troubling thing, lynching going on, some kind of ferment going on in society, people wanting their cathartic uh, violence demonstrated in this graphic way that's very troubling to him, he's just seeing the crisis of all culture at that time. And we're living in the crisis of all culture. Christianity is an anthropological experiment, among other things. I mean, it's much more than that. But at one level, what, when we say the word church, what we're talking about is an anthropological experiment, which has to do with building community that do not require scapegoats. Um, so, anyway, so Mark, uh, so uh, Mark Twain is seeing that crisis. Now he's laid it out very in very crude terms perhaps but at least he sees it and now he says what are we going to do about it so mark twain wants to know how to solve this problem and he speaks of two i, I suppose they were fairly w widely known cases of uh, two sheriffs one in uh, carroll county georgia and one in princeton indiana who stood up to these lynching mobs and dispersed the mob and he says this is what we need people that can do this where are we going to find people like this that have this kind of moral courage 
And it makes me think, I'll just mention it in passing, something that Yahweh says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had to put up with the contempt of his people many times, of course. And in his calling to Jeremiah, Yahweh says this, Brace yourself for action. Stand up and tell them, the people, tell them all I command you. Do not be dismayed at their presence, or in their presence I will make you dismayed. I, for my part, will make you into a fortified city, a pillar of iron, a wall of bronze, to confront all this land, the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests, and the country people." End quote. So that's everybody. That's, all the, that's the power. It's the crowd, the priests, the princes, and the kings. That is, so he's going to create, Yahweh's going to create this one person who can stand up to that crowd. This is the biblical tradition at work. Now, how does he do that? You see, Mark Twain would say, well, he makes Jeremiah into somebody who has moral courage. What does moral courage mean? What is the ontological underpinnings of moral courage? It is that Jeremiah lives and moves and has his being in his God and not in his social order. You see, because moral courage is just the effect that comes from having one's being in something other than the social order. Moral courage always has to do with resisting the mimetic power of the crowd or the mimetic suggestion. That's what moral courage is. And it's, it, it, is, it comes from being, it comes from imitating something else. It comes from imitating something else, and in this case, imitating the God of Israel, as it does in the life of Jesus, who is, who is doing only what his Father bids him do, you see. So it's important to note, which Mark Twain doesn't note, that this moral courage is not something in and of itself. It's a product of another kind of ontology, the, specifically the ontology that the biblical tradition recommends to us. Okay, so he says, where are we going to find it? We have to find people like these, these two sheriffs, he says, who can do this for us. He says, the mobs want to be scattered. It's not true. Mobs don't gather together in order to be scattered. You can be sure of that. Nevertheless, if they're gathering in a world which has been under the influence of the biblical tradition, there, it, it is true that somewhere inside each one of them is this... Is this uh, moral misgiving about what they're doing. And so to that extent they do want to be scattered. But I don't think, I think that's only because the gospel is working in the world. Nevertheless, Mark Twain says they want to be scattered. This is the, the second quote from the Gospel of Luke I'll share with you today. And that's this marvelous verse that at, at, at takes place when Jesus dies. And it, it is this, quote, When all the crowds who had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, they turned away, went home, and beating their breast. Now, they had gathered for the spectacle, just like all scapegoating crowds gather, all lynch crowds gather. It's that moment of social unanimity at the expense of the victim. But they saw, and Luke uses the word here that's, that's only used here in the, in the New Testament, theoria. It means seeing in a much broader vista than just, just the visual mechanics of seeing. 
it's it, it, it really it's an epistemological parallel to that thing we talked about at the beginning of the difference between ordinary knowing and emphatic knowing the deeper kind of a knowing so here theoria the crowd suddenly saw and they went home beating their breath and that's the beginning of the world we now live in the world in which the sacrificial scenario produces moral misgiving rather than triumphant social unanimity that doesn't mean we stop having sacrificial scenarios because the reflexes that drive us toward that are very powerful and they're rooted in our social and psychological makeup uh, so those impulses are constantly being triggered but they don't to the extent that the biblical revelation the revelation of that event begins to ramify through history uh, these those events do not generate social solidarity rather they generate moral misgivings just as they do in that story so to that extent the mob does does want to be scattered but meanwhile it's a mob who's going to be the one to stand up and resist it this is what jesus does when the woman is caught in adultery and he he stands up and says let's he's without sin throw the first stone and they begin to disperse you see this is what christianity is all about to break the power of that anthropologically that's at the heart of it to break the power of the scapegoating uh, scenario and and to create communities otherwise when the crowd goes home beating its breast it's not a conversion it's not peter hearing the cock crow or paul on the road to damascus but it, it, it at least is the breaking down of the old order it's not entering into the christian way by any means but this is the gap between the breaking down of the old order and the recognition of the truth of of the christian revelation there's a huge gap between them, and in that gap is the crisis of the modern world. You see what I'm saying? It's we are we we are the people who cannot who cannot attend those events with the same kind of triumphant spirit that our ancestors were able to uh, to experience there, and so we drift away, beating our breast. The culture begins to dissolve, and every once in a while, a, a spasm g gathers us up, and we go again. We walk away the same way. Moral misgiving. So it's not Christian conversion by any stretch of imagination, but it's the it's the dissolving of the old order. So Mark Twain wants to know how do how do we stop this? He says, being human, we must imitate something. So let's find these brave people who can stand up to crowds, and no doubt we will imitate them. And pretty soon we start with one or two of these sheriffs. They stand up to lynching mobs, and pretty soon he says everybody will start to imitate them. He says, quote, For we are all imitators, and so other brave sheriffs would follow. To be a dauntless sheriff would, would come to be recognized as the correct and only way to be a sheriff. And the, and the dreaded disapproval would fall to the share of the other kind. Courage in his office would become custom. The absence of it dishonor, just as courage presently replaces the timidity of the new soldier. Then the mobs and the lynching would disappear. That's a short course in what in what the gospels are doing to world history. You see, it changes what it means. The word sacrifice doesn't no longer means what it used to mean, killing the victim. It means the self-sacrificial uh, stance of the one who confronts that. See? So he says, how are we going to do that? Where are we going to get these people? We need starters, he says. <laughs> It can never be done without starters. 
where are we going to find starters? This is like, how do you start the yogurt without the starters? You know, where do we get the starter mix? And this fundamentally is the question that had, brings us back to Revelation. Because we live in this world, and so when the Gospel of John talks about Jesus coming, descending from the Father and ascending to the Father, it's, it's actually an appropriate way to speak of this. And when we use the word revelation, what we mean is there was no way for us to get out of this without something breaking in on us. It had to break in from outside. It's not something that came. So when people talk about evolution of consciousness, that, that's crazy. It breaks in on us from outside. And it broke in on us. What the biblical tradition is the story of how it breaks in on us. And it breaks in on us decisively and finally in the gospel. And so that's how we get a starter. Because the start, you don't get starters otherwise. You see how you can't, you can't self, they can't self-generate. But he says if we could get some starters, we could really change things. But where are we going to get them? Then he has the bright idea, which takes him back to the second paragraph of his little essay, which is, we, get the American missionaries in China to come home. We need, the, we, we need what they have. And he's talking about a time when to be, an, to be an, a missionary in, in parts of the world where the gospel has not made significant inroads is to, take, is to be at risk. And so he says, let us import American missionaries from China and send them into the lynching field. With and, and apparently the statistics showed at the time that there were 1,511 missionaries in China. And so he says, with 1,511 of them out there converting two Chinamen apiece per annum against an uphill birth rate of 33,000 pagans per day, <laughs> it will take upward of a million years to make the conversions balance, out the, balance the output and bring the Christianizing of the country in sight of the naked eye. Therefore, by the way, I like this because... I mean, you see, today we'd be too, we, would, we, we wouldn't speak this way, so we wouldn't say pagan, and we would be much more sort of generous in the way we speak about this. But in order to get this, we kind of have to go back to a, the straight talk of a, of, a, of a Mark Twain. So he says, therefore, if we can offer our missionaries as rich a field at home, at lighter expense, and quite satisfactory in the matter of danger, why shouldn't they find it fair and right to come back and help us? And then this, this is, this is really marvelous. He says, the Chinese, by the way, are universally conceded to be excellent people, honest, honorable, industrious, trustworthy, kind-hearted, kind and all of that. Leave them alone. <laughs> they are plenty good enough just as they are. And besides, almost every convert runs the risk of catching our civilization. We ought to be careful. We ought to think twice before we encourage a risk like that. For once civilized, China can never be uncivilized again. We have not been thinking of that." End quote. Now, we wouldn't use the word civilized. As a matter of fact, if you look back at China in 1900 and, and America in 1995, who, who, who's civilized and who's not? The, you know, you see, that becomes a different question. But we could use the word demythologized. Once China becomes demythologized, you see, the, the, the key to the, the old structure of social 
stability is myth and the old sacred system. And we could say with Mark Twain, once China or any other society is demythologized by the gospel virus, there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Once the gospel has been introduced, and I tried to argue this as strongly as I could in the book, once it's introduced, the, there's no way myth can return for any uh, duration. You, know, you can have little revivals, but they don't. They, you know, they last about as long as our enthusiasm for Joseph Campbell. That's a nasty thing to say, but I mean. What I mean by that is I like Joseph Campbell, but the point is, you know, this sort of fascination, this romanticism about myth might come and go, but in terms of really mythologizing in the way in which uh, ancient societies used to be able to do that, we can't do it anymore. So Mark, uh, Mark Twain is absolutely right that once China is demythologized, there's no returning uh, to a mythological form. And I think the Western influence, even though it's by no means a straightforward biblical influence, has a demythologizing effect on other societies. It's happening all over the world. So back to Mark Twain. He says, we ought to be careful. Once civilized, I would say demythologized, China can never be uncivilized, or I would say mythologized. Again, we have not been thinking of that very well. We ought to think of it now, he said. Our missionaries will find that we have a field for them, and not only for the 1,511, but for 15,011. Let them look at the following telegram and see if they have anything in China that is more appetizing. It is from Texas, and he quotes his telegram. Quote, the Negro was taken to a tree and swung in the air. Wood and fodder were piled beneath his body, and a hot fire was made. Then it was suggested that the man ought not to die too quickly, and he was let down to the ground while a party went to Dexter about two miles distant to procure coal oil. This was thrown on the flames and the work completed, end quote. And Mark Twain said, send this telegram to every Christian missionary in China and ask him to read it over and over and over again and decide where he wants to do his missionary work. <laughs> and then he does... And he says, these people are the only people who are competent to do the task we have before us. And you ask, of what does that competence consist? And he says, quote, they have the martyr spirit. Nothing but the martyr spirit can brave the lynching mob and cow it and scatter it. Now, the martyr spirit doesn't mean that you are a martyr or you're even want, willing to be a martyr. I think the martyr spirit means that you are grounded in something other than the social order because the social order giveth and the social order taketh away. And if your only sense of who you are is the social order, you cannot, you have no place to stand. You have no standing when the social order convenes itself for one of these sacrificial tasks. You, you simply do not have a place to stand. And only the biblical tradition especially in its prophetic uh, writings and in the New Testament, ex uh, points to a place to stand. So the martyr spirit goes back. It goes back, of course, to Second Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Uh, but it goes back very powerfully to Jesus' message to his disciples in the Gospel of John. He says, I've told you all this so that your faith may not be shaken or that you may not be scandalized. 
They will expel you from the synagogues, and indeed the hour is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is doing the holy duty for God. They will do these things because they have never known either the Father or myself. End quote. So Mark Twain says, send this telegram about this, this terrible, cruel murder to all, the, to all the missionaries in China and have them read it again and again. And then he sets up this scene. He says, now we have to picture a scene. And the scene is, take the 115 lynchings that took place in 1899, the 88 that took place halfway through the year 1900, uh, so that's 203, uh, allowing 600 feet of uh, distance between them, set up these lynching scenarios, 600 feet apart, enough room for 5,000 Christian men, women, children, uh, to gather around each one of them and have them stretch uphill because he says it, otherwise if it's just on a flat plane the curvature of the earth will make it impossible to see them all so have it have them stretch up a hill for as far as one could see there would be a million people in attendance uh, and have all the fires be uh, ignited at once with nothing but a soft wind blowing and the moaning of all the victims and have all the Christian missionaries in China think about that what is he asking them to do? He's asking them to stand at the foot of the cross. If that's what that is. In other words, something that shocking might bring us to our senses, which is what the cross does. The cross essentially brings us to exactly that place. In other words, what we need is people who've had that experience. What we need are Good Friday people. We need people who have come to identify with the victim and who, if they have the martyr spirit, recognize the victim as their Lord, the supreme victim, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world, as their Lord. They don't identify with just the latest victim. You see, the most, we're like, when it comes to the Christian revelation, we're like ducks, you know, they hatch out of an egg and they look around, the first thing they see, they lock onto it. A duck will follow a dog around the barnyard if that's the first animal it sees. You see what I mean? So, we're like that. We wake up. When the gospel hits us, it's like we wake up and we see a victim. And maybe the victim we see is people of color, see, racial discrimination, or, or, uh, or the poor, or uh, you see the, the, ca the, the lower caste if we're in India, or in modern America, the women, or whatever it is. We wake up, we see a certain class of victim. We identify with that class of victim. And we think, ah, this is the so whole problem. This is the whole problem of history is right here. Just the way Marx said, the whole problem of history is right here, the exploited working class. Yes. Or somebody else would say, the whole problem of history is the... Franz Fanon would say, the whole problem of history is people of color. Or today the feminists say, the whole problem of history is the discrimination against women, uh, etc. And we lock into it. And I think we, I think we miss the real power uh, and, and when we do that, we, we become, it's very easy to become victimizers because now then we justify everything we do on behalf of that particularly designated victim. Whereas if we wake up and we identify with the lamb slain since the foundation of the world, then we recognize the victimization uh, scenario in, in, or we're more likely to recognize it in all of its various and sundry forms. I realize how inadequate all of this is, and I, all the more so inadequate because I've been talking a hundred miles an hour trying to get it, trying to get this little essay 
under our belt before we turn to the Gospel of Luke. So I apologize for that. But I did it as an alternative to what might have otherwise been an abstract and analysis of the extremely important work of René Girard. So, in closing, I'll just mention that Mark Twain's essay anticipates the work of Girard uh, in the following way. He sees that the problem is scapegoating, that the cultural problem is scapegoating, and that the, and that the scapegoating is not, no longer working. As the character in Flannery O'Connor's short story says, Jesus thrown everything off. It's backfiring. It's causing, it's not, it's not creating culture anymore, it's creating chaos. He sees that imitation, or what Girard calls mimesis, which is just a Greek word for imitation that is not necessarily conscious, but that is all the more powerful for not being so. Mark Twain sees that imitation is at the heart of who we are, that we are going to imitate somebody or other, and that the imitative power or the mimetic power of a crowd is tremendously strong. And we will imitate it unless we have something just as strong to imitate. And the only thing there is to imitate, besides the power of the crowd, once the crowd is constellated, is the one who's left out of the crowd. There's nothing else to imitate. The crowd is the black hole that draws everything into it except the one it expelled. So when the crowd begins to form, there's only two things to imitate, the crowd and the one the crowd has expelled or is expelling. And, and Christianity inspires us to identify with the expelled one, the crucified one. And all of this is part of Girard's analysis of culture and our social and psychological makeup. So now we've done the hard part, in a way, or I've tried to put the, back, the anthropological backdrop uh, for understanding how the gospel works in history and in cultural affairs and how it works anthropologically. And we'll be returning to that periodically as we go through the Gospels, but for the most part, I want to be looking at how the Gospel works spiritually on each one of us. And I think the Gospel of Luke is a, is a supreme text for helping us uh, understand that, and not only understand that, but experience that. So I don't want you to think, because I've talked about all this grim stuff, that we're going to be talking about it throughout the Gospel of Luke. Quite the contrary, I hope. This concludes an introduction to the Poetry of Truth with reflections on Mark Twain's The United States of Lynchardom. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.